0: Education was not simply another part of American society. It was the key that opened
1: the golden door education you learn how to learn. We must trust students to learn if given the chance. To learn the chance. If the pursuit of learning is not it will not be at all. Welcome to the one hundred and eighty days podcast, where we're gonna be talking about all things education having to do with parents, students, teachers, policy kind of whatever is happening in the news and what's relevant in the world today. This is your host, Karen Greenhouse, and we also have our host, Tim Pope. Say hi, Tim. Hello. Hello. (laughs) And this is episode eight, and we are discussing tracking in schools, um, benefits, disadvantages, what it is, those types of things. So you were mentioning before in an email to me that you thought this was probably one of our more controversial topics. Why do you think so?
2: Uh, Controversial, it, it may be a strong word, contentious, in that it's when you bring it up, people have very strongly held beliefs one way or the other. And unlike a lot of issues that tend to be a little more political and fall into the traditional left versus right. Like, I've talked to people who, with whom I have very great respect, and I think are phenomenal teachers who have very disparate and strongly held views on this subject. Uh, like, this is the one i like, yeah, I have friends who are going to listen to this podcast who are, are going to say that uh, they think I'm a bit uh, insane on this particular topic.
1: So, tracking is basically when you group students by their perceived ability to succeed in that grade or in that course. So, they often take an achievement test or it's based on scores from the last year and recommendations from teachers, those type of things. But it's basically grouping students by their perceived ability level, so that they might go into the below average class or the average class or the above average or honors or gifted or special education, whatever it is. Every school has different ways of defining their tracks. Some kids are grouped into the sports teams names, right? The lions and the tigers and the whatever, whatever it might be. But each grade, each grouping is basically Ability groups, so homogeneous groups of students who all have the perceived same group level. Exactly. It's
2: not just academic, though. I mean, it's a lot of schools, it's by grade. Like, there'll be a policy that, in order to be in the honors track, you have to have had gotten a certain grade in, in previous courses. Well, not wanting to veer too often to the tangent of grading, but the reality is, for most schools and most teachers, grading is as much if not more a product of effort than it is aptitude
1: correct and then a lot of classes like you were saying like if you want to get into an algebra course i know a lot of students have to take a pre-assessment to make sure they can do the basics before they get into the course and if they don't pass it then they're put into pre-algebra right so there's also some very specific um i don't know what they call them assessment tests however you want to determine it that's another way that people decide how to group
2: Right. And then what that looks like can take a variety, whether it's like access to different reading material um, in an English language arts class or whether you're tracked in terms of what math classes you can take at what grade level or how much time you spend in math class. If you are a lower achieving student, maybe you get tracked into a math class where you get the joy of spending 90 minutes a day on your least favorite subject instead of just 45.
1: Right, right. Or you have two math class preps, I was reading that, or instead of the one, whatever it might be. So I guess one of my questions about this was, you know, why did we even start tracking to begin with? Because if you think about when school started back in our country, it was, you know, the one room schoolhouse, right? So everyone would come and they'd all be different levels, but they also typically didn't go to school past like eighth grade because they were going home to work on their farms or uh, do their trade, blacksmith, whatever it might be. So from what I was reading, it started around the 20th century when school became mandatory. I guess that's for everybody. So uh, that's sort of when tracking started. And what I read, and I know it's not necessarily the case anymore, probably not at all, but a lot of tracking started to keep the classes separate. So the upper middle class was tracked into one kind of college prep, white collar career kind of path. And then the Minority and working class students were kind of put towards the life skills depending where they were going. So that sort of was the beginning of why we started tracking. Um, And then there's tracking based on gender and race and all those types of things. So that was sort of the beginning of tracking back in the 20th century was to kind of put people on the path that was more appropriate for what they
2: we're gonna do in their career. I mean, yeah. in that, I, I mean, I, see, I think we're probably gonna talk more about math than any other subject today, just because that's the one that's the one you and I know
1: absolutely
2: um, the best. But I mean, that system existed up through until about 10 years ago. I mean, the reality is, when when I was in school, right, there was sort of the kids who did the algebra track, who did the algebra, geometry, algebra two, because we were going to college, and there are the kids that did variations of arithmetic and they would have whatever consumer math and uh math fundamentals and there's all sorts of names that schools have come up with over the years for basically reteaching it The, the difference being today and after specifically no child left behind but even before then the algebra for all movement and now I mean everyone's taking algebra. I think in most states almost every student has to take geometry.
1: And some have to take algebra too.
2: Correct. I know Texas had gone down that road, but they've pulled back in the last few years just in terms of places I've taught. I do know there are places, there are a lot of districts that have local requirements requiring algebra 2. I mean right. honestly, in the area of the common core, any common core state or district, you almost have to require algebra two because you couldn't cover all the high school math standards in two years. So if you're using a traditional model, you really you ha- you have to have three years of high school level, meaning algebra one and above mathematics, if you're going to cover the standards anyway. So now you have. This goes back to what you're saying. Historically, how did things start? Why is tracking continuing to thrive? Well, because now we have courses that when you and I were in school, those students who were struggling math students, they didn't take those courses. I mean, even when I first started teaching, when I taught Algebra 2, I didn't have to differentiate my Algebra 2 classroom. Those kids had already been weeded out before they even got into my room.
1: And actually, it still exists today, because if you think about it, just graduation requirements these days almost kind of force a tracking. You know, you have to have this many math classes, you have to have you have to take algebra, you have to do this. It's it's forcing some sort of tracking to make sure if you want to get that. Because I know some schools even have different leveled graduation diplomas I mean
2: my high school daughter is taking AP calculus this year she in her heart of hearts knows and wants to be a special education teacher that's what she wants to do for her career there is no way she has absolutely no reason to take calculus and I told her this but she wants to take it because she wants to be in the running for valedictorian she wants to qualify for scholarships she wants the extra GPA points for taking AP classes I mean, it's, uh, the system has its deal.
1: Right. I mean, I guess we're getting to the question of why do we still track students? Because we do still track students. Like if you go to, I don't think I've been in a school system where it isn't still tracked to some degree.
2: I mean, why do you do it if you ask any teacher or any parent with school why they do it? It really is, and this comes to the whole controversial part, people aren't tracking because they're wanting to specifically deny students access to a quality education. Um, if anything, they're trying to provide that. They're saying like, all right, well, we have struggling learners and we need to make sure that those learners are getting the extra time, attention, help they need so that they can be successful. Um, Conversely, we want to make sure that we are properly developing students who are going to do STEM professions, future doctors, engineers, um, that they have access to higher-level mathematics and that they aren't being held back. So the easiest way to do that is we'll, we'll just track students and put them in the track where they will be most successful. So, I mean, that's the academic piece of it.
1: What's the controversy then? Because, like, as a parent, I will admit when my children were in school that I made sure they were in the honors courses. And, the, I mean, they were good students, so they could handle the work. But I made sure that they were. So I know a lot of it is parental pressure, and I don't want my student in this particular class or whatever. So what are the drawbacks of that? Well,
2: because it's cultural as much as anything. I mean, I could say the same thing for for my kids. The reality is, I don't know that it's a statement of the incredible academic aptitude of my children, but, uh, I mean, they grew up in a home with two college-educated parents um, one of whom has been a lifelong educator in terms of what kind of skills, both hard skills and soft skills, do you need to be successful in a traditional school environment? My kids lived that. Not only was that valued, but there were parents in the home, uh, both the parents' extended family who valued that and knew how to support kids in developing those skills. I mean, the reality is and that's not true for all children. So it's, it's as much a cultural piece as it is an academic piece. I mean, the last... Uh, the last school I taught at in Texas, they had tracking, we had regular classes, and then they had what they called pre-AP that seems to have fallen out of favor. but. Pre-AP was a term used for a long time for honors classes, the idea of being preparing kids for AP classes. You take pre-AP whatever. Then there was an equity argument. So the school said, you know, we can't deny kids access, so any student can sign up for pre-AP classes. They would get recommendations from a teacher, but a parent or student could go to the counselor and say, I want to take pre-AP algebra. I don't want to take regular algebra. And they could be placed there. Well, then there was a hoorah um, that... uh, Those Pre-AP classes were then being watered down and gifted students weren't being challenged in those classes, so then they created what we called alpha classes, which you had to test to get into. So then we had three tracks. Pre-AP classes became the de facto classes for white people. I taught in a school that was about half Anglo and half Hispanic. Pre-AP classes were 75-25 white to Hispanic, and the regular classes were the flip. So there are social cultural benefits to a tracking system. Kids end up in a class where culturally, they're like, well, this is where I'm supposed to be. For better or for worse.
1: Right. I would imagine that if you took a snapshot now, it's probably still like that in many places, right?
2: Uh, So there is political benefits to it. It's an easy answer now for an administrator, but the reality is, If I am a principal or a school board member, I mean, what parents are most likely to be actively engaged in their kids' education? I mean, I think I told the story in a previous episode about dealing with the school district and my son, and now that I'm not allowed to talk to the math coordinator anymore in my district. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, if I'm a school board member and I'm dealing with these, with these parents who are demanding that their children get a more rigorous education so that they can go to an Ivy League college or whatever their higher ed aspirations are, tracking's an easy answer. Like, okay, well we have these special classes so they can take these special classes.
1: It is definitely becoming a big part of the conversation in education of trying to stop tracking or to consider different ways of constructing your courses.
2: So, I mean, the biggest drawback is what learning do students get access to? I I was in in a school, I'm not even gonna say what state it was in because the teachers, there were phenomenal teachers, but I was in a school last month and spent 2 days in classrooms observing teachers and they had they had a tracking system and meeting with the department chair wonderful man afterwards and he said well basically what did you see and i said the biggest thing i saw is, <laughs> is the students that are in your basic level classes will never be able to take college mathematics they're getting algebra credit. They're in an algebra class or geometry class or algebra two class. That's the name on the transcript. But I mean, those kids will, each and every one of them will have to take remedial math if they go to college. Because what happens is in an attempt to serve those students who are struggling the most, there's the instinct of you teach down to where the students are at. You know, if all of the students are struggling learners, you're not going to reach a level of rigor anywhere close to what students are supposed to get in a class called Algebra Challenging Algebra 2.
1: Right. I mean, just to kind of add on to that, I teach at Drexel University, and so I teach teachers who are getting their master's in mathematics. And I cannot tell you how many times I hear from them, because we're we're like, we have a problem solving course where we're really trying to help them integrate real critical thinking, rigorous problems into their classrooms. And I... I get all the time. Well, I teach the low level kids so they can't actually talk to each other or I can't give them this problem. I'm going to have to make sure I give them all these other steps. So it's like, the, t- the belief is that these low-level students can't do anything rigorous. They have to just be focused on skills and processes. So they're never going to get there because they're not challenged often.
2: Well, and they don't even have the opportunity to learn it. Like, they're not given access to, to that mathematics. And so not only in terms of post-high school, but even within high school. Like, I, I sat there, and at the, the same school, I said, you know, a student who is in the lower-level algebra class Let's say it's a student that matures later. I mean, it's a student that when things finally click. They could never move out of that lower level track because if they went to the uh, higher level track, they'd get swamped because they're so far ahead. They would they would miss so much. So you take a student who is struggling to be a successful learner and they're just starting to get it. Well, they can't move that track because then they're going to have to go even faster than the kids. Um, who might learn the content more more readily. So, I mean, those are the huge academic issues. But then there's also the, the social issues. When I met with the department chair, he looked at me, he's like, I know, you're right, I don't disagree with you. I don't know how to make that work in the social-political climate of that district. And, I mean, now, you and I are old enough to remember that show, Welcome Back, Cotter.
1: Yes, I do remember the show, <laughs> Welcome Back,
2: Cotter. I, I don't know if that's on Netflix or not, but they had a classic sitcom of the '70s, and they had the Sweat Hogs, and that was like basically the class, the class of all the losers.
1: Right, the low achievers. Right.
2: Right. Uh, John Travolta's first uh, first star turn, but kids then they figure out like, okay, I'm the kid that's no good at math. My my lasting personal memory of this was uh, my oldest daughter struggled with math, and we were the parents like who always pushed our kids to take honors level, like we know you can do it. And she came and uh, she sat down with us after her freshman year and begged us to let her take regular geometry. The whole honors was really stressing her out, and uh, she really didn't need it. She really just wanted to take regular geometry. And so we went along with it, and she hated the entire year. (laughs) Because it was because the culture in that classroom, it was that Sweat Hogs culture. Um, The kids were off task. There was a lot of disruptive behavior. They didn't really want to learn. The teacher just sort of punted because he didn't feel he could reach these kids. I mean, so then she ended up going back to Honors Algebra 2, which was a huge struggle for her on rigor. But she knew, like, that was the only class she was ever going to really learn in because she, she wasn't going to learn anything if she took regular Algebra
1: 2. That was one of the things from Joe Bowler some of the research that was in the NCTM white paper that just came out, um, National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. I have to remember to do my acronyms. But she says, when you put these students into these... You know, low whatever they're called, low achieving, whatever. They it just continues the stereotype that they're not capable of achieving mathematics, and we so we just are consistently um, keeping that myth alive that if you're in this class, you can't do mathematics.
2: Right, and then there's the the last thing is, is you have a teacher quality issue, which is in most schools the teachers who get to teach those lower level students, are. The rookies, the people who haven't, I mean, because there is no career ladder in the world of teaching. Like, I mean, the career ladder is administration, which is a whole, that's not a career ladder. That's changing jobs.
1: Experience, seniority is how it's based.
2: Right. So most schools have some sort of seniority system. Basically, if you've been there the longest, then you get to pick what classes you want to teach. So in theory, your most experienced, highest quality teachers, I mean, they want to they want to teach those upper level courses because a those are students who learn like they learn their students who get it it's a joy to teach like i mean i taught ap statistics i love teaching ap statistics a bunch of kids were motivated learners higher achieving learner it, it was
1: right smaller classes all of those it,
2: it was it was great fun so not and not to judge teachers for wanting to do that Uh, because if you're in a tracking system, that's how it works. Now, I have been, like, the school that I've been talking about that I was at last month, they did have a system in place to try to save teachers, where every teacher had to teach at least one section of a lower-level class.
1: Yeah, and I I was in a school where they started that, and boy, I tell you the calculus teachers were not happy. But I mean, so what's wrong with having, because in the article, the NCTM white paper that just came out was talking about there's not only tracking of grades and subjects, it's this teacher tracking that you're talking about.
2: Which is reverse tracking.
1: Reverse tracking, whatever it is. And so why is it bad? Why is it bad that a, a new rookie teacher is put with the lower level students? Why is that a bad thing? Well, just I was, I was a rookie teacher and I did get all the low level classes. I also had to float. I had all these things in my first year of teaching, and I knew my mathematics, but what's the biggest problem as a new teacher, classroom management, um, just understanding strategies of how to work with kids. Like So you're having a person who's still learning about teaching, trying to teach students who need more support. So it's not that they're bad teachers, it's they're just new at it, and they don't have all the tricks of the trade, basically.
2: I mean, the solution is the solution that would would push two-thirds of the teaching population to quit. Right. Which is, if you think about it, if I'm a math teacher just out of college, I probably became a math teacher because I was a pretty good traditional, I got the math content person. And I just took all the higher level calculus classes and those math courses you take to get your math degree. That person is most equipped to teach AP calculus, AP stats, pre-calculus, because they're going to have a class of all kids that learned like they learned, doing content that they've freshly just studied in college they're best equipped for those classes. The teachers who have been around for 20 years, they haven't done academic mathematics in 20 years, have been around students. They have those classroom management skills. They know how to motivate learners. They, they know how to do assessment. Those those teachers make the most sense to teach the most struggling kids. And we do it just the opposite because it's work.
1: Well, it is. It's it's a lot of work. And, and it's almost like they consider it a reward. I've been here forever. I should get the quote-unquote good students. Exactly. The easy students. It's less work to teach a cl- calculus class of 11 students than a you know, algebra class of 30. Exactly.
2: So I mean the one question that comes up we talk about all this is well the one group that should be successful in all this are the higher track kids because they're in a class with motivated learners. They're getting exposed to more rigorous mathematics with the highest quality teachers. So those kids should be making out great in this system,
1: right? Right, but they're not. <laughs> well, you will
2: wonder, and I. This and this might be the time to go ahead and uh, and play uh, Lizzie's piece. So
1: we interviewed Lizzie Barnes. My name is Lizzie, the uh, mathematics supervisor in San Francisco Unified School District. We are a pre-K
0: 12 district. Uh, with 135 schools
1: and 56,000 students.
2: Well, San Francisco very publicly and with a lot of publicity completely removed tracking from their high school math program.
1: So everyone is going to be in heterogeneous math classes until eighth grade. So everyone takes the same math. Everyone's mixed together. There is no algebra until you get to ninth grade. Um, so this was their plan. So she, it, it's amazing to me just listening to her what what happened so
0: our policy in addition to us not teaching algebra one until ninth grade we support heterogeneous classrooms up until
1: you know up through actually through 10th grade so just to clarify for people who may not know what you're talking about when you say heterogeneous so if I am getting this right you're saying that there isn't as is typical in most schools, there is isn't an uh, honors class for eighth grade. And then uh, Correct. it's all eighth grade. Everyone's in the same eighth grade mathematics. Correct. Okay. I love that. <laughs> so part of the context for us is that the Common Core
0: provided an opportunity for us to really think about what does it mean to be good in math? What does it mean to be successful in math? And to move away from um, some long-held practices in San Francisco and, and elsewhere, certainly in California that success in mathematics means taking classes younger and younger and younger, which tended towards a procedural understanding of math. So like, oh, I'm smart because I'm taking algebra as a seventh grader, versus, wow, I'm able to think deeply about mathematics and apply it in new situations. We looked at our own data, what was happening. We saw that our students who were... You know, being rushed into Algebra One in the Algebra for All movement, we were not finding success. And we were losing students not only in Algebra One, but as they progressed through our course sequence, going on to geometry and going on to Algebra Two, that we were losing about two thirds of our students in terms of how were they, you know, were they showing proficiency on the state tests at the time? Were they progressing in the course sequence? And what we were doing was not working for our kids. And we saw huge racialized outcomes in particular. We were failing our African-American and Latino students with this model of racing everybody into Algebra 1.
1: The juniors up to this time, it was 40% students were having to take remedial math, like go back and retake algebra, and the group that is now the current juniors, it's, all, it's down to 8%.
0: When students are experiencing failure in math, they get on a cycle where they are failing in math, and they do start to disidentify with them, you know, with the idea that school is a place where they experience success. One of the cool pieces of data that I'm just starting to learn and make sense of is now that we have fewer kids that are in that cycle of failing mathematics, Um, An amazing thing is that we are seeing many more students who are taking another semester of science. So again, if our commitment is to the STEM fields, obviously I care deeply about math teaching and learning, but it's, it's really powerful that there are now, you know, sophomores and juniors who aren't going back to that algebra class, so they are enrolling in a third year of science for example and um, in a lot of cases it looks like it might be as much as a semester more. I don't have the numbers memorized but that's one of the beautiful things that we can now look at and say because of
1: the choices that we've made as a district. So where you have heterogeneous classrooms versus homogeneous classrooms.
0: We were learning a lot from our own teachers, from the long-held practices of groups of teachers in our district that have been using complex instruction which holds up the idea of a task-based curriculum and students doing collaborative group work and really learning from each other in a heterogeneous environment. So we were thinking, for example, about growth mindset research. And we had groups of teachers in our district who were able to tell the story to our board that teaching in a heterogeneous classroom made it possible for all students to go deeper.
1: Now, did you get a lot of pushback? Because I would imagine there was probably some unhappy parents
0: Yes. We had parents who wrote petitions asking that algebra be restored as an eighth grade class, but parents, you know, to the credit of every parent, every parent wants what's best for their child. And if the, if the past, system implied that your success is based on being able to take algebra younger. You know, parents had hard questions for us because it felt like we had taken something away. So, it has been important for us all along. Every time we do a parent night, we do a math talk or a math task. Um, we work to, you know, represent the research. We work to talk about what's happening in that articulation between math 8 and Algebra 1, you know, the Common Core is pointing towards college and career readiness. So we're also talking about what happens in a class when kids are talking to each other and defending their reasoning. That's what, for example, leaders in the STEM fields are asking us in terms of what they need and want to see more in our classrooms. Um, Some of what was happening was um, there were definitely some misconceptions around things like kids can't progress to calculus. In reality, we have a compression course in our high school, as well as students being able to double up in their high school courses, so students can indeed go to uh, calculus. In fact, among our non-seniors this year, so these are ninth to 11th grade students, there are currently 1,286 students taking either our Algebra II and Precalculus Compression course, or taking pre-calculus. So in other words, we have about 1,300 kids who are positioned to take calculus next year, whereas this year, our current seniors, we have about 1,200 students who are taking calculus. Because your,
1: your current seniors are the ones who are from the old system
0: before. Right. Um, so again, we're comparing our current juniors and our current seniors. So it actually looks like, we won't know until next year when we look at the numbers, but it actually looks like with fewer and fewer kids getting on this sort of hamster wheel of repeating and failing, that we've actually opened the door for more kids to find success in fourth-year math classes. And what's great about right now, this year, finally, we now have data that backs up that very strong choice that we've made. Um, not that it's perfect, and I don't mean to imply that it's perfect. We still see a discrepancy in performance of our African-American and Latino students relative to their peers. So we have a lot of work to do. We have not we have not cracked everything. We haven't finished So we're seeing early indicators of success.
2: Now, next year, year four will be the year like, all right, how many of those kids actually take calculus and then how do they how do they do on the AP test? So it'll be another year before they have those results to see if, in fact, going heterogeneous is a uh, strategy that will lift all boats. And not, uh, and not just the, the lower level, which is the assumption when you detract
0: students. This was a risk. We, we framed it as a social justice issue. We did a lot of thinking and learning, it feels important to say, with colleagues from Oakland Unified as well as um, partners from SERP who included Harold Asturias and Phil Darrow and others. So, so we were doing a lot of thinking and learning about what would this mean. We were looking at the research of Joe Bowler, Um, as I said, we were attending a lot to leaders who have been thinking about complex instruction for many years. So this wasn't something that we did in isolation. This is something that we really brought our best thinking over time
1: um, to to the question. So it seems like this non-tracking system, putting students heterogeneously and really providing them with this rigorous mathematics curriculum where everyone's problem solving, where they're working on the strengths of the other does seem to be working in this San Francisco example, right? So then how does a school system support, if you're trying to create classes where everyone is heterogeneously mixed, so you're in an algebra class with all levels, how do you support the needs of all the learners? So Tim, was where were you last week?
2: I was at the NCTM Innovate Conference in, beautiful Las Vegas.
1: In Las Vegas. So Tim, Tim asked a couple teachers about this idea of tracking, and we'll play a couple of their responses here. I'm Michelle from California, I teach high school, and I think this is a challenge that faces everybody. I think it's important that we offer high quality education at all
0: different levels, and I think that's the bigger challenge, rather than putting all the levels at the same place. I think it's very hard to mix students with different experiences and skills when you're learning skill-based information in the same room because being able to help them at the level that they need would be a great challenge. So if we raise the level of high-quality education for all different skills, then that might be the answer rather than putting everybody into the same room.
2: Hi, my name is uh, Jim from California. I think, on the surface, I do agree with the statement that um, all kids deserve access uh, to high-level mathematics. I think, in math, one of the issues is what, to do, what do you do about a kid who clearly can't access the material because of uh, skill deficits? Do you then have a really a moral obligation to then intervene and provide him with or her with structure and support to access the material? Um, and wh- I think one of the issues we run into is that there's only so many hours in the day. So, you know, if a kid, and our school has kind of moved to that model where we, most kids are mainstreamed uh, or at grade level, but we just run out of time to, to give them supports. And what happens is they're in interventions all day long and they really just have a hard time connecting uh, to school and with school. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know uh, if there is a, a right or wrong. Well, and they're at a school that does track.
1: Right, and it was interesting to me, listening to their responses, that their reasons for tracking were all based on, we need to make sure everyone's, we need more time for those lower levels, and if they're all put in one class, they're not going to get that. So those kids will get behind, which does not seem to be what San Francisco is finding. So then how do you help these teachers who are schools that are thinking of taking away tracking? That is probably the biggest question. If I have a class of all mixed, how do I support all of them?
2: I mean, before you could even start to talk about the how, you have to convince the try. And I mean, we we mentioned San Francisco a few minutes ago. One of the biggest challenges with that was communicating that to the community and getting the community to support it. A lar- And a large swath of that community still doesn't support it. I mean, they have a superintendent and a school board who continue to support it. There is and I'll give I'll give the link. I, I read there's a ASCD, the Association for School and Curriculum Development. It's basically a professional organization for curriculum directors and assistant superintendents for curriculum in the country. They came out with a book a few years ago about tracking and had a, a old chapter on this whole dynamic of how do you begin to untrack?
1: I actually think I have that link. What tracking is and how to start dismantling it.
2: Right. And so they talk about you have to start with, A, the language that you're using to discuss students. And B, like anything else, you have to look at the data. I mean, it's we said does tracking work? Well, an examination of data comes in. Like, I think teachers, parents just make this assumption that, of course, it works. And, of course, this is what's making... Um, the, the higher level kids are, are more successful and the lower level kids are getting the extra time and attention they need. So of course it's working, but I don't know a lot of schools actually have taken the time to look at their data. Like, is it in fact working? Is there any change? Are those lower level kids now passing at a higher rate? Is your achievement gap, if you look at your subpopulations, is, is your achievement gap decreasing? So you look at the data, you look at your language, and then, I mean, the, the chapter, I, I mean, I like because it's pretty honest about it. You have to sort of start with you have to get your teachers who are on board with the idea. If you just, I mean, San Francisco has, I mean, they spent, as Lizzie indicated when she was sharing with us, they have spent a lot of time and a lot of resources working with their teachers to get them to buy in to the idea.
1: Right. Because it's more work, right? If you have heterogeneous classes, because you really have to think about what supports does each child need, both ends of the spectrum and in the middle, right? So it may be the same type of problem situation, but- you might need to do some scaffolding here at the beginning or some extra stuff at the end. So it is more work. So teacher buy-in and teacher training is a huge part of it.
0: So,
2: I mean, that's the buy-in part, but I sort of evaded your initial question, which is how do schools do it? And the answer is, it's, I don't, as much as it is crystal clear to me that we need to do it, the solution isn't. Uh, NCTM document that we've been talking about. So just to briefly, the um, it's, a, it's a draft document to give uh, NCTM their out right. on this. Um, that they came out with a pro a month or two ago to address high school mathematics. Um, and not just this idea of tracking. It's really a, a longer, bolder document establishing a, a vision for um, what high school mathematics could be and, and should be. And, a part, of the, and a, a part of that was on this idea of tracking. And in that document, they talk about this idea that Yes, those students need extra time. So, like all students would take an algebra one class and an algebra one class taught at the appropriate level of rigor. But then, if maybe they would have a, a second a second period where they could get that additional time and that additional support. And I have seen a lot of schools that go to a model like that, which seems great. With one exception, is that you're talking about students for whom school is a struggle. And I'm sorry, unfortunately, by the time they got to ninth grade. Most kids have already been identified, like my daughter. She's already identified herself and the students in her class who are the good at math kids and who are the not good at math kids. Right. So you're taking kids for whom math is a challenge. It's not their most enjoyable thing.
1: Giving them more math.
2: Right. And you're saying more math. And on the flip side, you're taking away what's most probably an elective course, one of the things that motivates them to come to school, um, the fine arts class or the uh, or the athletics class class. Um, that they enjoy that gives them that's their as much their motivation to get through the day as the one honors pre-calculus classes to their rookie math teacher um and we're taking that away from them because we're saying well you have to take extra math
1: that's actually one of my pet peeves about this is that's how we're going to address those low is give them more and more and more time and practice but we don't change what we do so uh, it's not just necessarily more time it's It's different approaches of how you teach it. And that's where I think we're lacking.
2: Because there's only so many hours in a day.
1: Right, exactly.
2: I could say, well, all right, well, let's not take an elective. But maybe let's say that instead of three years of social studies, maybe kids should only have to really take two. Well, I guarantee you, we're going to have all the social studies teachers in the world. That's how hosed we are. Um, I mean, the NCTM document is now pushing for four years of mathematics for every student. They're positing that uh, their very radical approach that I don't want to get too much into because it'll be another tangent, which will be interesting but not relevant to this topic, is a, a whole new model of courses where students take two and a half years of the same mathematics untracked across the board, and then that last year and a half, students can make specific choices to study other mathematics. Um, other levels of mathematics other types of mathematics. Hmm. It's like, well, all right. So the four years of math, which means that's, I mean, most schools at most only require three. So now that's yet another, like some other class has to go away <laughs> in order for that to work. And I don't know if that, I mean, that seems to be a little narrow minded.
1: I mean, I guess the big thing here is, I mean, is tracking good or bad? There is no real answer. It sort of is, how is it being approached in your school and You know, what's happening in those lower-level courses? Are those students being exposed to quality, rigorous curriculum? Um, That's really sort of the question. And
2: that's the equity issue because there is no perfect solution. I I really don't believe there is. I mean, there's lots of attempts. There's lots of things you can do. But at the end of the day, is your school um, or your school board, if it's a district policy decision, we go back to that episode if you really want to listen to 45 minutes of who You should talk to about this. <laughs> um, is your school providing the opportunity for every student to have access to rigorous instruction? And if not, schools need to be pressed to come up with that. And like I said, there isn't a perfect solution. I don't think this is the podcast where we're saying go tell advocate that your school start this program, um, that they double block math or and they get rid of their two year algebra course. Um, the two-year algebra course is great because now students don't have to double block math but then it stinks because now uh they're they're sort of forced into taking four years of math if they're going to take algebra two or they don't get access to that class um so there isn't but they have to the attempt has to be made and there has to be a viable path for students to make that happen and it's up to each school community to figure out what that looks like I mean, it is a fundamental shift of thinking. i, I talk talked to all sorts of teachers who are just, I mean, you've been teaching for decades, and they, they'll they just say, there's just no way. Like, there's no way I can teach a course to the rigor of the Common Core Standards if I have a classroom with all different types of learners. I, I'm going to do an injustice to students at, at both ends of the spectrum. So there has to be... I mean, rather than maybe, rather than starting the discussion of we need to detrack, which becomes a bit fraught, maybe the discussion needs to start with are all students being exposed to, and this isn't just math. I know we've been talking a lot about math because that's what you and I know, but I, I mean, we could say the same thing about English language arts.
1: Right. Yeah, it's not. It's it's not just math. It's, it's tracking happens in really all the subjects.
2: So are, are all kids being given access to the curriculum that they need to be successful after after high school? And unfortunately, in in many schools and districts, the answer to that is currently no. In many, they are. I mean, there's all these bold social experiments like San Francisco. I mean, personalized learning and this idea of the school of one in New York. I mean, there are all sorts of folks who are trying different things to try to solve the problem.
1: So basically, you just kind of have to, you know, look at your school, your students, you know, as you're, I'm sure there are students that come home who've been put into that lower level reading book that are feeling bad about that because they're noticing it too. So, you know, talk to the teachers, like what's happening in your school? Um, It's just a way to kind of get an understanding. Are your students... Your children being given the right, the rigorous curriculum that they deserve.
2: Uh, yeah, I was sitting at the table on Monday. We're sitting at the dinner table, and my daughter, my ten-year-old, sweet fifth grader, sweet most days, was sharing this book she's reading for class, and she's very excited about the book. She thought it was a phenomenal book. Even explaining to Joyce and I that even though it's a kid book, she and that Joyce, Joyce, my wife, that uh, we should read it ah. um, because it's very interesting. And Can that, I ask uh, what the book
1: was, or do we not want to do that? <laughs> okay,
2: you, well you could, but I don't oh, okay. remember. <laughs> okay. It wasn't a book I had ever heard of before. I'm sure it's phenomenally good. But okay. then she was explaining that she's very happy because they split the class into three groups and then assigned different books to each group, and that she, her, she and her group got the most rigorous of the three books, and that the other two, ah. well, other books that were being read were much simpler books that she had read years ago. And I mean I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say that she was necessarily cocky about it. So it wasn't cause it wasn't sort of a a bragging thing. It was just more of a stating of this is how she perceives her classroom world.
1: So she noticed that some books were easier and she'd got the more difficult therefore Assuming that she was in the smarter group, maybe
2: right. And she didn't say it that way. She didn't say the smarter book,
1: right? Oh, I know um, that. Yeah, but I'm saying that's sort of but, the perception, right? Rate. But she
2: definitely has like, we have the harder book, and so these are these are the students who who have greater capacity than other students in the class, and it's it's less a deal of attitude and more a deal of awareness. So she's already has the sense in elementary school that when it comes to reading, that certain kids are uh, more gifted at it or, than others um, and she uh, she's 10 years old and she already has this perception which will only get reinforced next year when she goes to middle school and then she will uh, have to take a test and find out if she gets to be in the gifted track the honors track or, or the regular track
1: so what is our conclusion here about tracking it's there is no answer at this point
2: the, so the. Uh, if you're a teacher, if you're listening to this as a teacher, the conclusion is you and your department need to do a, an honest assessment. Are students, all students, being given access, top end, low end, access to the curriculum, to the learning that they need to be successful? If you're a parent, is your student in a classroom culture, whatever level they're in, are they getting what they what they also need to be successful? Is your school a culture that's promoting learning for all students and check the facts. If you're like Karen and I and parents, uh, educated parents who have students that are typically positive and good in school, well, is it in fact true that our kids taking all honors classes um, and AP classes, is that in fact making them more successful? And check your assumptions because I think we, we make lots of assumptions that need to be checked and then decisions made. There isn't an easy solution. There isn't a clean solution. But the reality is, the status quo in most schools is that that equity does not exist. And that's, believe it or not, that that equity is not just harming lower level students, but harming more successful traditionally quote gifted students
1: and we will provide all the links that link to the nctm uh, white paper and the ascd book all those things will be in our podcast blog
2: if you're one of our math teacher friends listening to this if you haven't read that nctm draft i highly recommend it it's a it's a great piece to start conversation
1: yeah exactly all right well thanks for another great episode and uh,
2: Tim you want to do our usual yes it's the reminder for re- for reviews for reviews and and love. likes um, on the, the Apple podcast or Apple iTunes site um, as well as uh, Twitter <laughs> Facebook the web page um, all those fun things we are we are still gaining to improve I will say I'm having a great time doing this I, I love doing these episodes
1: it is a lot of fun and
2: my hope is that uh, coming up soon we're gonna have our first very special episode. Oh, Um, I don't
1: even know what that is. I'm excited.
2: uh, well, (laughs) uh, Well, I'm hoping to do the Kenya episode. I went to Kenya with a group over the summer and spent two weeks with teachers and we so, got to uh, sit down oh, that's right. and to talk to uh, many of the teachers and many of the, the women in the community that we were working with. And so we're hoping to put that together into a podcast that I think will be phenomenally interesting because the trip was a phenomenal learning experience for me, for sure. Yeah.
1: All right. So stay tuned for that. More exciting stuff. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. Uh, this is Karen and Tim signing out from 108 Days Podcast.
2: Bye. Bye.
1: There will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out
2: against research,
1: who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.